Um, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I believe that uh, God is happy that you made it to church too. And he's got something that he wants to say to you. Amen. So we are, uh, we've been in a series uh, on Leviticus, which I sincerely believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit led me to develop. Um, that's been over a year in the making, and I've had a lot of uh, people, friends in ministry, as well as some in the church go, what? Why are we doing a series in Leviticus? Because it's in the Bible, amen? And there's a lot of good truth inside of that. But just as much as I believe with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit directed me to develop that series and for our church to go through that series, I believe with all of my heart that he has pushed the pause button on that for this week so that we could uh, so that I could share with you a message that I believe he's given to me that he's been stirring in my heart now for more than a year uh, but it wasn't the right time to share it today is that day so you've made it on the right day and if you listen to this message today and you're impacted by it share it with a friend we post them on our Facebook feed they're on our website in the iTunes store uh, I've encouraged everyone who's serving in kids ministry today to make sure that they listen to this message because I really believe the Holy Spirit has uh, ordained it for us today you know each one of us find ourselves at a place of decision you may not recognize the decision that you face but you face this decision every day and that decision is this, whose voice will you listen to? I'm captured by the words in Genesis when God confronts the sin of Adam and Eve and he says these words, who told you you were naked? They'd been listening to a voice, not their own and not God's. They'd been listening to an enemy's voice. But we have this decision that we get to make on the daily, on the regular. And that is, will I listen to the the voice of the Holy Spirit or will I listen to my own? Because I've got news for you. The devil isn't omnipresent. He's not in your house, your house, your house, my house. He's not omnipresent like God. He's, and, and can I say this really boldly? He, he's probably not worried that much about you. He's got his little friends who help him with all that stuff. Sometimes they go by the names of our children. Sometimes they go by the names of our friends. But there are things, there are influences in our life. But I want you to be on the right page. The devil is out to get you, but he is not personally involved in your day-to-day life. The Holy Spirit wants to be. And so you've got the choice, will you, if I slap this podium again, that's going to go flying, will you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit or will you listen to your own? Because when you listen to your own voice, what ends up happening is you're slowly but surely moving further and further away from the voice of God. So when that happens in our lives, we end up finding ourselves enduring some circumstances that we surely could have avoided had we listened to the Holy Spirit and not only listened, but obeyed. So I say that as a lead in because I've chosen to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And Proverbs chapter 15, verse 23 says, how good a timely word is. And I thought about that, you know, when payday comes around. <laughs> Woo, okay, it's good. It's a timely thing, right? You're like, okay, I got it. But the same thing is true in our day-to-day life. And in Proverbs, the wisdom that's there is for us even today, that we need a timely word spoken to our spirit. Our church has recently experienced quite a shock. The unexpected departure of Pastor Cameron and Miss Becca, um, but I believe that God is sovereign over all. He's, he's Lord of all. Amen. We sang that in worship today. And I believe that God really wants to help us calibrate our mindset in moments of chaos, in moments of transition. You know, I think about Marines or those who serve. I think about police officers and first responders. I think about the phrase that you hear all the time when you hear reports about what happened is their training kicked in. The reason why they went to boot camp is so that they would know what to do when the bad stuff happened, so that they would steady themselves. There's studies out there that monitor heart rate for first responders and that say that some, a lot of them don't experience the heart spike in moments of stress because they've trained themselves to think clearly in the moment of chaos. And I believe that God wants our church to think clearly in a moment of transition. Now you might say, well, this isn't my church yet, or I haven't been here long, or I don't know who you're talking about that left. 
whatever it may be, but here's what I'm going to tell you. This message applies to you individually in whatever season of life you go through. It's not just because our church has experienced the departure of a staff member um, and we wish them well and love them and bless them, but we realize that God has something still for us to do and we've got to calibrate our mindset in moments like this. So all I want you to do today is I want you to take one or two things out of this message and seek to apply them to your own life. That's my goal really every week. I can give you three points or six or 20, but the the retention rate is not there. What I'm praying and what I've soaked this message in prayer with is God, would you help every single person who hears this message to be able to apply one or two things? So I'm gonna pray right now that the Holy Spirit would just fill each one of us and help our spiritual ears to listen today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity I get to preach and to pastor this church. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to clean out our spiritual ears. If we've struggled recently not hearing your voice, we've gone far from it. Maybe we've busied ourselves or distracted ourselves with other things. Maybe we have been sought out by the enemy. Lord, I pray today all of that would cease and that we would give in and give full control to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Our focus passage today is Isaiah chapter 61, verse one through three. Now, before I show those verses and before we talk through them, I want you to understand what the context or the background of it is. If you wanna go there on your device, you can, but just listen closely. These words that are written in Isaiah 61, they are written 700 years before Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. So they, they've been written 700 years prior to him existing on the earth. Isaiah was a prophet and he lived and ministered in the southern kingdom, which we know the divided kingdom happened in Israel where they were divided and tribes were separated. And then they had rulers over each one of those places. Now he lived in the southern region and he ministered throughout the lives of over a half century throughout the lives of four different kings. So he lived and ministered during that time and prophesied to the people who were there in Israel and in Jerusalem specifically. The known world at the time of Isaiah had been devastated. The children of Israel had been exiled. They had been set free. They were being exiled again. There was all sorts of tumultuous things that were happening in their days. They were dark days and they had no hope. They were experiencing uncertainty as they looked toward the future and they needed a message of hope. God breaks through into the heart of Isaiah and speaks forth a word to the nation, the people then, that would help them to have the anchor that they needed. 700 years later, Jesus chooses this same passage that we'll read in just a moment from Isaiah In his hometown synagogue, that's in their Jewish church, okay, in their building, he reads this from the book of Isaiah, the same scripture we'll read today, and it's the launching point or the launch pad of his ministry. He actually says, he declares in Luke chapter four, that these words that he reads from the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, that they are being fulfilled in the hearers that day. So there is messianic, or what we could say, looks towards the Messiah prophecy that's mentioned here in Isaiah 61. And today, Jesus' mission is still being carried out on the earth by the church. Amen? So here we are, 2,000 years plus after Christ. Now, if you're doing math, 700 years before him, before Jesus showed up, then Jesus says these words are being fulfilled today. And 2000 plus years later, we are still seeking to fulfill that same mission that Jesus gave because he's given it to us as the church. And when we find ourselves in times of uncertainty, we got to look at the word of God. Don't forget to read the Bible. Amen. All right. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 61, verse one through three. It says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now I want you to stop for just a moment. I study the Bible. The word poor is poorly used. 
the word there in the original language of Hebrew meant afflicted or humble. So when we think and read the word poor, we think, oh, they just didn't have enough money. That's not the case. It says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to those who are afflicted. Amen. It says, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. If you have another version of the Bible that you're reading on your device or in your hand, you may also see another phrase which occurs, which is recovery of sight to the blind. Verse two says this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Verse three, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, Thinking about what he's speaking in the day he's speaking it. There are people without hope living in Zion, which we would know as Jerusalem today, who needed to hear this message because they were mournful. They had thoughts of, why God have you forgotten me? Have you not heard the years I've prayed for fill in the blank? They were just like you and I. And he says to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Or another version says beauty in exchange for ashes. The oil of gladness instead of sorrow or mourning. And the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That's not a faint spirit like you just have a fainting spell. That is despair in the spiritual heart of a person to give the garment of praise instead of despair that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified or you could say that he may put his glory on display, that his beauty could be displayed to the world. Jesus is reading these words in the synagogue in his day. They apply still to us today. We've got to be careful when we read the Bible. We say that all the time. Be careful when you read the Bible. There's so much that we could gain just in a few short verses. I want to highlight or show you a few things here. The first thing is this. In verse 1, Jesus needed the Holy Spirit He is using, he's literally reading from the scroll of Isaiah. There's the picture of the Trinity. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus says, because he's anointed me. So the Trinitarian belief and doctrine of understanding is there even in Isaiah's day. It's understood. Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. Don't you think you do? Each one of us, needs the Holy Spirit. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, then what gives us the excuse not to? And I'm not, I'm not talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or anything like that today. I'm just saying that he's real, he's available, you need him, and if you're missing him, you can get him. Amen? So, the second thing is he was anointed for a purpose And so are you. You've been anointed for a purpose. You've been chosen for a purpose. His purpose included certain things and so does yours. The first is this, good news to the afflicted. Well, let me ask you a question. What would be good news to the afflicted? (laughs) That they're no longer afflicted, right? That they're no longer going to be afflicted. Amen? To bind up the brokenhearted. You know, when the heart aches and when we sense or when we feel pain, we can't, there's no medicine to take for that when we're talking about the emotional person that God made you to be. But he is the healer. In fact, he's the only one who can mend or heal a broken heart. I was reminded, and you might think this is funny, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But I've got good news for you. The king himself can. All the, all the tricks, all the self-help, all the other stuff that we would try to do to better ourselves, all of that is garbage in comparison to single-handedly just God in one moment touching and ministering to your heart. Amen? 
So if, if he's had this purpose to be able to share the good news to the afflicted, then we are to take up his cause in his absence. Amen? If he is called to bind up the brokenhearted, then we are to be the ones who help get the brokenhearted to him. Amen? The next thing about his purpose is that he's proclaiming liberty to the captives. Declaring freedom to those in captivity can only be done by those who've experienced freedom and by those who are more powerful than the captors. I want you to think about this. If you, if you are in a government that has a very low quality and low quantity uh, army, you cannot go into a larger nation and declare them free because you don't have the power or the strength or the know-how to do so. The same thing is in the spiritual realm that we've got to understand. Jesus Christ came to proclaim liberty to the captives. It's as if he's running into the town and saying, you don't have to stay here and be bound by this stuff anymore. You are free. And the Bible says, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. That means in every single way. opening of the prison to those who are bound. This echoes the same thing, but I I wrote this down. Jesus holds the key to every prison door. There's not a bondage that he's met that he can't break. There's not a lock that he can't pick. If we're talking about the spiritual sensitivities of our heart, we have got to understand that God's desire is for the captive to be set free and for those who have been bound to be set free. And we ought to tell somebody Right? Amen? So if we understand this, look right up here. If we understand this truth that God came to set the captive free, then we have got to be the ones who are his heralds of that same truth, speaking out that word to everybody we bump into, whether that's at the water cooler at work or somebody you've developed a relationship with, whether that's the same checkout person or barista you see. We've got to be those who show up and show out because God did something amazing amazing in us and set us free. And that same freedom literally is free and available to all. So we have got to be telling others. The several versions say recovery of sight to the blind. Think about this. In pre-modern times, you couldn't go get laser surgery for your cataracts. You couldn't go get LASIK to correct your vision. You couldn't get glasses to be able to see better. They didn't have the technology, the ability, and all of that in pre-modern times. So you've got to understand, if you were blind, your only hope was a miracle. And we are experiencing that same truth and reality today that when we are spiritually blind, there's no amount of self-help that can get you through. There's a miracle-working God, however, who wants to truly bring sight back to those who are blind. To comfort all who mourn. This is important because I, I thought through this passage of Scripture that those who are mourning if you're truly mourning, you're grieving the loss of something, something that was valuable to you, something that was attached to you or to your heart or to your home or to your family. When we mourn, we don't mourn for little things. We mourn for those things that have value that we've lost. This is important because the people of Israel in that day were mourning, thinking they were going back into captivity, thinking that God had forgotten them and they were worried. But we mourn what we've lost. And here's the truth. The truth of the word of God says that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. Not the blanket you have on your bed but that he is the comforter. He's called the comforter because he is the force. He is the person who is able to comfort those who mourn. In the New Testament, we see this phrase and it shows up in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Paul writes to the church there and he says, Praise to be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Listen to me, church, the God of all comfort, who, verse 4 says, comforts us in all, say all, all 
of our troubles. And it says there so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. The Holy Spirit is real and he's available to you today. He can help you in your mourning and he can assist you whatever season of life you face. He can be that comfort and that, um, that driving force that empowers you in your faith. The next part of his purpose and ours as well is this, that he exchanges our mourning or our sorrows for joy. There's so many songs that have been written just out of these short few verses. I thought about a dozen of them, uh, worship songs that have been written from different places in this. But he exchanges our sorrows for joy. He is the only one who can take away your sorrow. We've got to understand that because we are living in sorrowful times when people are grieving and they've got questions and they don't have a firm foundation of faith and they have sorrows that could be traded for joy. And Jesus' mission on the earth is not complete because we're still here. He hasn't come back for us yet. So our job is to continue that mission of helping others to get to the place where they can understand that he's the only one who can take away our sorrow and give you joy. I love a good shoulder to cry on, but that doesn't fix anything. Amen? It it really doesn't. It feels good, but they didn't take the sorrow and the hurt and the pain out of your heart. Only God can do that. And we've got to be the people who are pointing people in the direction of the one who can. And the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness or for despair. Think about this. Unless you're a prisoner, you got to choose the clothes you put on today. Your kids might not have, and maybe there's some husbands in the room that get a little help from their wives or whatnot. But in the general scheme of things, you get to choose, unless you're a prisoner and have to wear the same thing, you get to choose what you wear. You can even do that if your job requires a certain dress code. You can choose not to wear their dress code. You'd get in trouble, but you still have a choice. I want you to think with your spiritual self this morning and with your spiritual ears. You have got to choose to put on the garments of praise that he's given you, even in the midst of feeling feelings of despair or loss or rejection or betrayal or hurt or longing. You have a choice to make, and it's a garment that you've got to choose to put on. It's time that some of us changed our clothes. I hate seeing sad Christians. They give everybody else a bad rap. It's not just that I'm talking about fake it till you make it. I'm talking about something supernatural that God can do in the heart of no matter the man, the woman, the child. He can do that work that will help you celebrate and have joy and put on that garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness or despair. I don't want to oversimplify this, but hopefully you change your clothes every day. Right? You don't just do it for you. You do it for those around you too. I mean, I know, right? But I'm, hey, I'm a simple guy. Sorry, I preach a simple message. Here it is. This is the truth. When I put on the garments of praise, it benefits my soul. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Again, I say, bless the Lord, because he's choosing to do that. So not only does it help him, but I got to tell you, it helps those around him. Just ask my wife. It helps when I put on the garments of praise, when I am walking and I'm living with that benefit in my life of having that nearness with the Lord. And I'm saying, I don't care what I'm facing. I'm walking through this fire. I'm walking through this season. I'm walking through this dry spell, whatever it may be. I'm walking through it with the one who knows me, who created me, who loves me, who sent his son to die for me. And who's going to see me through this? So this is a message of a hope that people then 2,000 years ago needed. They've needed it every day since and will need it till the day he returns to take us home. Something incredible happens to those who've received the good news, whose hearts have been mended, who've experienced freedom, liberty, healing. Incredible things happen to those whose 
who have been comforted by the God of all comfort, who've had their sorrows exchanged for joy, who've put on, who've chosen to put on the garments of praise instead of despair. And verse 3 tells us what the product of all of this is. It says this, that they, at the end of this, this passage, it says that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. This is where I want to park for a minute. I'm sure you're all familiar with an oak tree. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit and I came down, went down to the coast to assist. I remember seeing lots of damage, chaos, just catastrophe, wiped out homes, businesses, boats, all kinds of stuff. And I can remember seeing, and I still have pictures of some of them, trees that were still standing that had weathered the storm that were right there at the beach when tons of others had gone. And I remember looking, and some of those were oak trees. They're some of the hardiest, biggest trees with some of the most elaborate root systems. They weather a lot. Their wood is prized. It was prized back in those days for timber, for building things that would stand the test of time. God has single-handedly planted you and wants you, desires you to become an oak of righteousness that he may be glorified. You know, there are, um, how do I say that? Agricultural. There are agricultural metaphors all throughout scripture. We've talked about some of them. You've read through the Bible and seen some of them as well. But since the days of Adam, people have been really involved in and invested in the earth. You may have family members who are farmers, or you may have eaten a fruit or a vegetable this week. We are all still closely connected to the earth. So it just makes sense back then in those days to have agricultural terms because everybody everywhere understood what you were talking about when you talked about that because everybody had to, basically there were no grocery stores for them to do that at. They had to worry about it themselves. So they understood. And here's the cool thing. God is a farmer. Genesis tells us that because he's also a gardener. He planted a garden. The Garden of Eden was planted by the Lord for people to live in, for Adam and Eve to live there. So he's familiar with this approach. The ancient Israelites would have been understanding of that too. In scripture, we're told that we are his sheep and that he's our shepherd. We're told that his word is like seed that gets scattered by a farmer. He reaches in and he throws it out. We've talked about the different types of soil that are represented in scripture. His word is that seed and I pray by the Spirit of God today that your heart is the good soil that it falls deep into. He's the owner of the vineyard. Jesus is the vine, according to John chapter 15, and we are the branches. There's so much depth in those things. The Psalms of David cover that too. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. All of these things that we understand, or they understood then, we take a look at today, and we can't distance ourselves from it. In fact, Psalm 65, I want to read to you a few short verses there, starting in verse 9. It says this about God himself. The psalmist is writing, this is King David's psalm, and he writes these words, you visit the earth and water it. He had this personal imagination or picture that God was the one who was choosing to water the earth. And he does so through the rain and the clouds, and we understand that. But David's imagery is there. He says, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. This shows his abundance. You provide their grain so you have, for so you have prepared it. He is the one who's responsible. Verse 10 says this, you water its furrows abundantly, its trenches abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Talking about produce. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. I started thinking about that and I thought, well, that's a curious phrase. Here's the deal. When the wagon has been going down that path year after year in the same plantation, the same farm, the same orchard, it has dug trenches of its tires and it's going down with so much produce that it's literally falling into the trenches of the path. That's our God and that's who he is. That's what he does. 
It says, you bless, you crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. As I said, God started putting this message in my heart over a year ago. But it wasn't the right season. He reminded me of this, though, when the Bells left our church. We recently had a family who left our church. They, um, they moved to Africa to be missionaries, and we sorely miss them. If they listen to this message, we love you and we miss you. We're praying for them. But even more recently, the Lord reminded me of this in Pastor Cameron and Becca's unexpected departure, too. I'm confident that God wants you to hear this message today because he has a blessing for Celebrate Church that he wants to pour out on us, so much so that the wagon tracks are even filled with the abundance of the leftover. I hold on to the anchor of that thought from scripture, knowing that what God has put together It is incredible. And what we're doing to be faithful to it is the only thing that matters. Being faithful to him and continuing down that same direction that he's called us to. You know, as I was thinking, and I said this uh, over a year ago, I was pondering and looking at Psalm 65, but I had looked at some other resources too. And I really felt in my spirit that God spoke a word directly to my heart. Now, when I say that, I don't want it to sound mysterious, like, you know, the voice of God has a direct, you know, channel to my office and say, Dexter, pay attention to this. Um, but it is something that I know that it wasn't my own doing and that God began to develop inside of me and spoke to me. And it was a personalized encouragement for me as your pastor. What I'm about to share with you has anchored me in all the seasons over this last year and plus some. And what I believe with all my heart is it's something that you and I could use in our personal lives. The fact is God owns the farm, amen? He owns the farm, he owns the orchard, and we are his trees. It says that we're to be called oaks of righteousness. So if you could think about this, again, not oversimplifying things, but if you could think about your pastor as being an operations manager at the farm in Clinton. That's what I do. I'm a tree myself, but I also wear another hat and I help out on the farm. I direct some of the things that have to happen on the farm. I empower leaders to take over and to do things that need to be done here in the orchard in Clinton. These thoughts have been recently flooding my heart with hope and with joy and with faith because what I really believe is that the owner of an orchard has a certain mentality. He's got a certain understanding that he lives and calibrates his mind to. What the owner does, he does with intention and he does with great attention to detail. He has a specific mindset that powers his or motivates him. He watches over the orchard like his livelihood depends on it because it does. This is what I would call an orchard mentality. I want to share with you the thoughts that the Lord gave me about the orchard because I think they'll help you focus. You can use them today in your life. If you can't, you can put them in your pocket and keep them for a rainy day or a drought-filled season because these are true things that will work. Here's the first aspect of an orchard mentality. The orchard belongs to the Lord. It's his. Jesus said, even of the church, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God's got this because his, his livelihood, if we could say it like that, he's invested in this orchard. He's sunk everything of his investment into a couple nut jobs who were crazy enough to say, yes, I'll go tell others about that. Those people, we call them disciples. They struggled with their faith even on the days of his resurrection. They still had issues of doubt. Yet he literally, there is no plan B. The church, you are the church and you're what God's plan is. So it belongs to the Lord. He's got this. The second aspect is this. An orchard is an intentional planting. 
It's something that takes a lot of care and concern to make sure that you're planting on the right side of the hill, that you get the right amount of sunlight, that it's not in lowland where there's too much water, that it's not in high ground where it's too cold. There's a lot of thought that goes into this idea of what an orchard would be. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this when he talks about the vine and the branches. He says, the father's desire, my desire, is that you be a branch that bears much fruit. That you bear much fruit for the king. It's an intentional planting. The next aspect of an orchard mentality would be this. That we are in this for the long haul. (laughs) An orchard doesn't just produce fruit overnight. In fact, it takes a lot of money. If you want to do some investigating and and detective work, you can look online. Buying an orchard is not cheap. Starting an orchard is not cheap. Maintaining an orchard is not cheap. All of those things that go into it have a lot of intention because they know they're not just in it for a single season. They're in it for the long haul. You might have a bad season. Somebody listen to me. You might have a bad season that you've walked through, but it is not your end. Do you hear me today? The the life that God has given us here on this earth is filled with many seasons. Some are tragic, some are traumatic, some are joy-filled and so weighed down with blessings that we can't even contain them. But we live seasonally and we've got to understand that when we come up against an obstacle, when we're having an issue in our marriage, when we're seeing behaviors in our kids that we wish weren't there, when we wish that things were different than they are, when we hunger and hurt for hope. We've got to understand that this is more than just a single season. And orchard mentality helps us really calibrate our mind to know, you know what? Might be a bad day. Might have been a bad week. Might have been a bad year. But God's got this. The next aspect is this. Every individual tree in the orchard is significant. Some produce more than others, but all trees in the orchard are significant. That means if I'm looking at the church as the orchard of God, as the planting of the Lord, that we are to be oaks of righteousness, then I'm to understand that each one of us has a significance and a value. And God desires that each one of us bear much fruit. There's no such thing as spectator trees. It's either you bear fruit or you don't, okay? That's it. Some produce more than others, but all are significant. The next thing is this. Nourishment is necessary. You can't just plant the trees and walk away. Nourishment is necessary. We're talking water, sun, and I hope you get a laugh out of this. Fertilizer. There's a lot of that going around. We need it though, because we need nourishment. We need things. In fact, I'm reminded right now of Paul's words that says, when you persevere, you're showing and demonstrating your faith in God because God is producing fruit to righteousness and faithfulness inside of your life when you persevere through uh, that nourishment of fertilizer, (laughs) when you persevere through a storm or through a season. But nourishment is necessary for your growth. Here's the thing. The trees that I'm speaking to today are not animatronic or robotic. They've got human hearts in them. So you really do have a choice of whether you nourish yourself. I love what the word of God says when it says that he stirred his spirit up in order to say, God, I'm here for you. I'm stirring myself up in the holy gift because I desire you to water me. Nourishment is on the orchard owner. It's on the operations manager, but it's also on you as a tree. You can't depend on me to be the only one to give you a meal. You've got to get it for yourself, amen? Amen. Here's an aspect that we don't often want to talk about. Every tree must be pruned. Interesting enough, every good tree that produces good growth gets cut back in order for better growth to come. 
Pruning is necessary, but it's counterintuitive to the human mind. It doesn't make any sense for you to cut off branches in order for the tree to be healthier, but it works. You can see that through horticulturists who who really develop their trade and their craft. They are single-handedly picking out the limbs that are in the middle that would crowd out the sunlight from getting to the other layers, and they're cutting those off. If you nip something in the bud or where the buds are and you pull them off, you say, wow, look at my tree. It's got so much fruit that's going to come on it. No, the fact is it's going to get distracted trying to send all of that to every part that none of it's going to be good and beneficial. So some of those things have to be pulled off. They've got to be cut. In fact, even though it's counterintuitive, Jesus says it's necessary. And we think of it in these terms that for the size of the tree, for the beauty of the tree, for the health of the tree, Jesus says every branch that bears fruit gets pruned. But we don't read it like that. At least I haven't. I read it like, oh yeah, you get cut if you're a bad dude. If you don't obey God, you get cut. And you do. But also the truth of the matter is, is the good stuff has to get cut back too. Good branches on good trees get pruned. I'm finishing up just with a few more thoughts before I have the worship team come. Some transplants are necessary. This is an important thing for the owner of an orchard, for an operations manager, for anybody who works as a hand on the farm or in that setting, they would understand that if you planted and maybe you made a mistake, maybe something else happened, but trees are too close together. Root systems are intertwining. Things that will go bad are about to go bad. And sometimes you've got to take something and transplant it to another place. Now, whether that's a good situation or a bad situation, if we have an orchard mentality, we will understand that God is truly sovereign over all. Amen? He chooses what and when to transplant. He's chosen to place you in this orchard for this season. And someday he may choose to uproot you just like he has the bells and put them in the orchard 3,000 miles away from us, really, really far distance. But he chooses. So we hold firm to the truth of God's word, literally from cover to cover that says that God is sovereign. Yes, there is a human will and we have a free will and we do make mistakes, but I've got to tell you something good. He's sovereign even in the midst of the chaos you create. Thank you. He's sovereign in the midst even of the chaos that we create. Amen? He's sovereign over all, even the human free will. He is exercising the totality of it. I'm reminded of the words of the children's song that we learned in Sunday school. He's got the whole world in his hands. He really and truly does. We have got to believe that he is who he says he is and that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You've got to trust the owner of the orchard. Don't get mad at him. Listen to me, church. Don't get mad at the owner because he chose to bring you to a place of being uncomfortable, of finding a new church home, or he chose to take someone out of our church home and transplant them elsewhere. You don't have a right to be mad at God for that. That's from your pastor, the operations manager, helping you understand this today. You don't have a right to be mad. You can be sad. But God is sovereign over all, and you've got to trust him. It's understandable that our hearts ache in moments like we faced recently. But we've got to trust the owner of the orchard in every single season. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. So, all good growth should be protected and celebrated. I've got one more point after this. Six more, but it's fine. Um, All good growth should be protected and celebrated. I've shared this story before, but maybe you haven't been here to hear it, so I'll share briefly. My Uncle Bruce, he's a farmer. He farms tomatoes and watermelons. He's been responsible for thousands upon thousands of acres of land in Southwest Florida. He farmed personally for himself, hundreds of acres, but also farmed and managed farms for other companies, large companies that produce 
tons and tons of produce. I can remember hearing stories and also going sometimes with them, with the uncles and the cousins, in a night where there was a, a proposed frost and the temperature was about to dip. I can remember hearing these stories of them setting fires on the four corners of the field, in the pathways around the field. And he paid buku dollar, I'm talking about high dollar, for these gigantic industrial turbine fans. And he'd put them in front of the fire and he would light that fire and they would get it so blazing hot you couldn't stand 20 feet in front of that thing. And they would begin to blow and exhaust that warmth over all of their crops in order to protect the growth that they had worked so hard to keep. They did a lot in order to protect the growth that they had worked so hard to keep. So we obviously need to protect the good growth that God gives us, but we've also got to understand that we've got to celebrate the good crop when it's harvested. The Jewish calendar is filled from the days of the origination of it for them to celebrate these feasts that celebrated the harvest time and the change of the seasons because they wanted to give thanks and glory to God for all that he had done. They wanted to keep their mind on not just that Farmer Joe made the right decision by putting it on the right side of the field, but that God is truly sovereign over all and he's the one who's responsible for the growth that has happened. So we celebrate the good growth the next one is this, pest control. Somebody say, oh my. Pest control is mandatory and it needs to be done regularly. Every believer needs to hear this. Pest control is mandatory and necessary. There are many pests in this world. They are always seeking to infiltrate the orchard. Sometimes it's the devil. Sometimes it's others, but a lot of times it's our own selves who have, who have self-destructed and caused ourselves to have places of weakness where pests can invade. I got to tell you, church, I've told this to the leadership of the church. I'll continue to live by this. The Lord revealed this to me years ago when I pastored a church in Hawaii as your pastor and as your friendly operations manager here at this orchard, I have dedicated myself to aggressively and immediately attack any threat and exterminate that threat because of the health of the orchard. Because if one tree gets poisoned, if one tree gets pestilence, if one tree gets a nest of bugs, if one tree gets a disease of some sort, it's possible that the entire orchard is at risk. I was asked years ago before I became the pastor of that church in Hawaii, pastor, if you use the analogy of a surgeon and you were able to understand that there was cancer, what form of action would you take? And I answered naively, but authentically, even to who I am today. And I said I would perform whatever radical surgery was necessary to be able to stop the growth of that cancer. That's who I am. And that's who I'm trying to help our leadership team to be. That's why we talk about wanting to be a healthy church that's not filled with gossipers and complainers and all of these things because we don't have time for that. We've got a big job to do. We've got a great God to serve. We've got a big world to witness and to win. We've got too much at stake to let things go unchecked. You say, pastor, are you up on a soapbox? Is somebody causing trouble in this church? No, not right now, praise God. I'm not that soapbox kind of guy usually. I'm just giving you the information because you're gonna need it sometime. You might need it in the life you're living right now in the season and you might need it tomorrow. We've got to calibrate our thinking in these moments. Worship team, would you come? We've got to calibrate our thinking in times of uncertainty and transition. Celebrate Church is the orchard that you've been planted in. If you're not, if you're not a guest with us today, you're a home folk, then we understand that you're part of the orchard and that God has called each one of us to be an oak of righteousness because his name is at stake. His name is on this. He is worried, not worried in the sense of being fearful, but he is concerning himself yeah. with the idea of this orchard. He's concerning himself with the idea of your own personal orchard in your own life, your kids, your relationships, your workplace. 
So here are some action steps that you could take away from this message and use in any season. The first one is this, talk to God. Bring to him your pride, your anger, your issues. Tell him that you're mad. Tell him that you need him to fix you. Tell him that you're broken. Tell him a hundred times if you haven't felt it and sensed it and experienced it yet. Keep going back to him. Talk to him. Develop your relationship with the owner of the orchard. The number two thing is trust God because he's got this. Amen? He's got the issue with the family member. He's got the issue with your kid. He's got the issue at work. He's got the issue. He's got this. You've simply got to trust him and obey him. And the third and last thing is this, bear fruit. Don't you be an unfruitful tree. That would be the saddest story ever told. That the church that Christ gave his life for had so many branches that the the whole orchard had to be burned started over but I've got good news that's not his plan and that's not the direction we're headed we're headed in the direction of bearing much fruit we should be troubled by Jesus words in John 15 when he says that the branches that don't bear fruit off that vine get taken off torn off and they get thrown into a fire he uses that analogy for the understanding of the human heart that those who don't serve and obey him will be cast away from his presence forever. I cannot even attempt to imagine what the Holy Spirit may have spoken to your individual heart today through this message. It might be that you need a course correction. You might need an attitude adjustment and you got one today. You might need to make the decision to really press in to God's presence and to put on the garments of praise and stop walking around like it's the end of the world because it's not yet. Amen? Maybe, I don't know what he spoke to you, but as the worship team does what what they do and they're gonna play an encore song, I wanna challenge you. You can stay seated. I wanna challenge you to not sing along with them until you've connected with God for just a moment. I'm not asking for there to be a loud, raucous praise party of some sort in here. I'm telling you, you can whisper a prayer to the Lord. You might be sitting close to your spouse. It might involve them. So whisper it in your mind or your heart to the Lord. But connect with him today. He wants to be the hands-on orchard owner in your life. And maybe there's sin. Maybe there's miscommunication or not, a lack of communication. But I just want to pray for you today as you respond to this message and that you would have this hope twofold for your own personal life, but for the life of our church, that God's got this and he's going to see each one of us through every season because we are all in it for the long haul. Would you close your eyes for just a moment as you dedicate this moment to him? Holy Spirit, I pray that today, Lord, you would help me to have an orchard mentality in my own heart, in my own life, and also over this church that you've given me. Holy Spirit, I thank you for this message, and I pray now, as people respond to it, I pray that they would determine in their hearts to have an orchard mentality as well. In Jesus' name.